The SS Congress, built in 1913 and owned by the Pacific Coast Steamship Company, was the largest steamship vessel along the West Coast in the early 20th century, weighing in at almost 8,000 tons. In 1916, it was operating as a passenger steamer between Seattle and Southern California via San Francisco. On September 13th of that year, under direction of Captain N.E. Cousins, the ship left San Francisco at noon with 445 souls on board, passengers and crew. The next day, about 30 miles off Coos Bay, fire broke out in the aft hold. Despite crew efforts, a lot of them, it became obvious that the fire was not going to be controllable and it would engulf the entire ship. Captain Cousins set course for Coos Bay, full steam ahead, and residents of the area, Marshfield, as it was known then, received the details over wireless and a thousand residents, doctors, priests, photographers, rushed to the bay ready to help. And I only laugh because just the inclusion of photographers there, uh, but very importantly, doctors. On the captain's orders, the crew herded passengers to the bow farthest from the fire, but the decks became so hot that people's feet began to burn and passengers and crew attempted to remain calm, dancing the scariest of jigs. Women and children went into seven lifeboats. News reports of the time made sure to point out that the women, quote, cried hysterically while the crew and the more self-possessed, read men, kept the situation under control. But Let's leave the unpacking of that for another time. What's important for us today is that in the transfer of those aboard to a rescue ship, only one mishap occurred. One crew member fell into the water while attempting the transfer. He was okay, just cold. Four years earlier, just four years earlier, this same man had raced against time and in frenzy to help a shipload of people another time. And that time he didn't so much as fall into the water as he did step into it, as he claimed, without the water even wetting his head. His name was Charles Jockin, and you may think you know him, drunk baker of the Titanic, right? Fodder for Halloween costumes and buzzsprout lists. But this man, this life was unshockingly so much more than any of that. And don't worry, Everyone made it safely off the SS Congress in 1916. I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is the baker, Charles Jockin's life at sea. I want to begin by thanking my latest Patreon members. I want to extend a massive, massive, massive cheers and thank you to Aaron and to Mindy. As always, it means the world. Thank you for your support of this podcast. If Patreon is something that you have been 
maybe thinking of joining, interested in, be on the lookout. I will be unlocking a bonus episode in the next couple of weeks, and I'll give you a sense of what those are like. It might help you make your decision on that front. Uh, But again, thank you to all of my Patreon members. I appreciate you so very much. Now on to Charles Jackin. I have been so looking forward to this episode for so long. Charles John Jockin, and Jockin, as far as I could tell, is the correct pronunciation. You will hear it read or said as other things, but I believe based on the research I've done, that is correct. Charles John Jockin was born in Birkenhead, Cheshire, England, August 3rd, it's my husband's birthday, 1878. He was baptized that year at St. Peter's Church in Liverpool. He was the son of John Edwin Jockin, who was a licensed licensed victualler. And I had to do a little bit of research on this because victualler can mean several things in terms of um, British history. And then if you add the licensed part to it, that also means different things. But the best I could I could gather is that during this time period, a licensed victualler meant um, a publican, a licensed publican who held the license and managed a pub. So I believe his father managed a pub. His father was from Liverpool. His mother was from Birkenhead. He had four siblings, Sarah Ellen, Theodore, Richard Archibald, William Arthur. His mom had also been married before, so he grew up too with two half-siblings, Robert and Mary Agnes. So a lot, this happens a lot with Titanic crew and passengers that when you go in the search of biographical information on them, most of what you find is just data that was in the census. And if you run across articles about someone like Charles Jockin online, you will see sort of the headline part of the article claim a lot of info. And if you actually unpack what is written, you'll find that most of it is just census information put into different order or or inferences made from census information. So really for his early life, as with many Titanic crew and passengers, we don't know a lot past what's in the census. So I can tell you what we know from that. Charles first appears in the 1881 census, living at Birkenhead, and he's uh, three years old at that point. He's born in 1878, remember? His father died in 1886, and his mother began nursing to sort of make ends meet. She also at one point managed a coffee shop. In 1891, the family is living in Liverpool, and Charles is described at that point as a schoolboy, though there's not There's no way he was in school very long. Unfortunately, we know this because Charles was largely illiterate for most of his life. And there's also a lot of sources that claim he headed to sea as a child, as early as 11. And I couldn't, you know, tracing tracing back sources is a very heady thing. It's very intense. I read so much about Charles Jockin. I'll mention a couple of my sources at the end of the episode. A lot of what's online, I I trust in a general sense, 
uh, so much of what I read said, yes, he headed to sea at like age 11, 12. And I think some of that is based on people that have gone through ship rosters. So I do think it's accurate, but I just want to give the disclaimer that I have not rolled that back to actual ship rosters, but I do think this information is correct. He was not the only seagoing person in his family. His brothers, Theodore and Richard, were both in the Royal Navy. His brother Theodore, who had gone to sea very early as well at age 15 or 16, unfortunately died at sea uh, during a fatal, like a fall. And he was aboard the HMS Cornwallis. That was in 1915. So that would have been after Titanic. But I just wanted to mention that his brother Theodore was in that situation buried at sea. Jumping ahead to the 1901 census, the family is in Walton, an area in Liverpool. And you know, I just want to say, I mean, we were just in Liverpool and we went to a game at Anfield. My husband is a huge Liverpool football fan. And I looked it up and where Charles Jockin's family lived at this point is just about a mile north of the stadium, which means that we drove right through the area where Charles Jockin, well, I mean, at this point he might've been at sea for parts of the year, but probably came home to this house during this period, but we were right there, which again, it just always astounds me, uh, you know, just number one, to think that we went to some of the places associated with Titanic. It was just a huge uh, dream come true in my life, obviously. But, you know, you just think about every place that someone came from and their footprint on that place before Titanic. It's just, you know, I guess, why we're all here are these stories. It's pretty incredible. So anyway, 1901 census, they're still in Liverpool. Charles is described at this point as a baker at sea. So his occupation is recorded in the census. He's on numerous crew lists in 1900, 1901, serving on the Majestic as second baker. And he would also go on to serve on the Teutonic. His mother later moved to Kent to live with one of her daughters. So Charles is notoriously on the shorter side. Reports are that he was just five uh, feet and three and a half inches tall. And if you look at pictures of him, there are a few. He is. He's a you know very short of stature man, uh, very stoic, weirdly, in pictures, which I found interesting. I think because we think of him as the myth of the drunk baker, and that's all we think of. We think of him as some big, fat, jolly guy, but that's not the case. He wasn't overweight. He wasn't, I don't know, he might have been jolly, but in pictures, he looks just a regular, posed, kind of stoic man of the era. He got married in Liverpool in November of 1906 to a woman named Louise Woodward, who was right about his same age. And she was the daughter of John Thomas Woodward, who was a ship steward and uh, had grown up on the Isle of Man. The couple's daughter, oh, and I, you know, I do want to say, I don't have definitive information here, but I did see a couple of times, uh, once was in Veronica Hinkie's book, which the last night on the Titanic, which was helpful here. But I did see a couple of times where he's thought to have done some baking training on the Isle of Man, where there may also have been some Jockins, some other family members of his. So I wonder if it's sort of a 
almost a Dennis and Mary Lennon type of situation where, I mean, not coming from different classes, but a situation where maybe Charles sort of apprenticed to a bakery on the Isle of Man, and that's how they met. I don't know anything about the Isle of Man. I don't don't know much about his wife's family, but I wonder if there's something there. But also her dad was a ship steward, like I just mentioned, so maybe you know, there was the seafaring connection. So anyway, that's just speculation. But Charles and Louise had a daughter, Agnes Lillian, who was born in February of 1907, and a son named Roland Ernest, who was born in 1909. Now, Roland was born in Southampton. So by 1909, they are in Southampton. So Charles is absent from the 1911 census, and his wife and children are shown as residents of Southampton. So I imagine that must be because he was at sea at that point. So Jockin signed on to Titanic at the age of 30. He was living, like I said, in Southampton, and He boarded Titanic with a staff of 10 bakers, two confectioners, and a Vienna baker. So 14 bakers working underneath him. Because at this point, he's a seasoned man of the sea. He's worked on smaller ships as a baker. He's worked his way way up, so he's in charge. And 10 of these bakers had also worked on the Olympic So they are familiar with the ship and they are familiar with each other. So I can imagine, this is just speculation, it was a pretty tight crew. These people, these men knew each other very well. Charles Jockin's pay at this point was 12 pounds a month, which I looked up and would only translate to about 1,100 pounds a month today. Still not a lot. His cabin on Titanic was next to the turbine engine casing on Scotland Road. Scotland Road was the main crew passageway in in the 97 movie when Jack and Rose break through the door with the axe and they tell the steward to shut up. You see, (laughs) There you see a great shot of Scotland Road and what it would have looked like. It ran the full length of the ship. And water was able to move really quickly through Scotland Road during the sinking because it was such a clear shot. And it was a clear shot because it was the place that third class and crew would traverse the ship. But anyway, water couldn't travel as quickly on the starboard side as it could on down Scotland Road, which is part of the reason why Titanic started to list to port. I, you know, I I run into this a lot when I do these deep dives on crew or passengers, I I wonder to myself, how much should I implant into the narrative of the episode, you know, time on Titanic? Because so much, there's so much I've already covered in terms of the voyage and so much I will continue to cover. And for some people that I do these deep dives on, say when I did Helen Churchill Candy, for example, 
it makes sense to talk a lot about her time on Titanic before it was sinking. So much of her story is about, you know, in that situation, who she met, who she interacted with. We have a lot of sources for that. I don't have any sources for Jockin during the voyage. And anyone who writes of his time during the voyage pre-iceberg, I imagine is just speculating, is just kind of throwing some ideas out there, which is fine too. And if I were to throw out some ideas, my ideas would be that, you know, he was in charge of all of these bakers and hard at work. You know, when I've covered crew schedules before, talked about them, I did a bonus episode on the cooks. And I think that bonus episode was unlocked, um, gosh, maybe about six months ago. You can go back in the feed. But I have found that the the real driving thread is that they were so worked to the bone. They would get up at six o'clock in the morning. They would sometimes be expected to be resetting, especially stewards and people that worked in the dining saloon, would be expected to be setting up the next day's meals and not going to bed until you know, seven, eight, nine, ten o'clock in some cases. So, you know, if you were in the food departments on Titanic, you were tired and busy. And I can imagine that Jockin fell asleep in his bunk whenever he could, just like a lot of the crew did. And when he wasn't in his bunk, he was the bakery, you know, working, making, and interacting with this group of 14 bakers. And they probably had a very nice camaraderie. But beyond that, I don't know. And I don't think anybody really knows. So we meet up with Charles Jockin in terms of the sources at the strike of the iceberg. And what I'm going to tell you from this point on is mostly from Jockin's testimony at the British Rat Commission's inquiry after the sinking of Titanic. It was my number one source. Now, I, of course, cross-checked it against many other things. I never take a testimony, which is a primary source. I never take it only at face value, just as none of us should. It should always be put in context. And I did. But a lot of the details that you're going to hear are straight from Jockin's mouth. So I'm just going to unfold everything from this point. Um, Ship hits the iceberg. Jockin rouses his staff at 12.15 a.m. after he has felt this jolt. He knows that he needs to get bread up to the boat decks. That They're going to be loading lifeboats. So he sends each of them with four loaves of bread. So 52 loaves of bread total to the boat deck. And a lot of people talk in terms of this about the biscuits, which is different from bread. The cabin biscuits, which according to Jockin and his testimony, and according to all the sources I've read, were supposed to be in like a kit in the lifeboats. But some people, some survivors, claimed that they weren't there. Some claimed that they were. Some of them had to be in lifeboats because of this thing I'm about to tell you, just an interesting side note. In 2015, a cabin biscuit, an original Bicky, like the hardtack cabin biscuits from Titanic with the words spillers and bakers at the center of the cracker. This sold an auction in 2015 for $23,000 to, as best I could tell, an anonymous collector. 
in Greece. (laughs) The biscuit, which was, like I said, kind of more similar to a cracker. It was part of the collection from James and Mabel Finwick. Now they were newlyweds who were on the Carpathia in 1912 when it went to rescue Titanic victims. And this ended up in their private collections. It was kept as a souvenir and folded up into an envelope for years and years. So anyway, I just had to mention that. It's so intriguing that someone would pay that too, or just the simple fact that it still exists. So at 12.30 a.m., Jockin locked the door of the bakery, and in his pocket, he put his keys and some tobacco. And he goes to Lifeboat 10, to which he had officially been assigned in the mustard drills. They had the lists in the crew areas of who was assigned to what boat in case of an emergency, and boat 10 was his boat. So he goes down to load it. He says, quote, we got it about half full, and then we had difficulty in finding ladies for it. They ran away from the boat and said they were safer where they were. Now, this goes, this falls directly in line with what you hear time and time again from survivor accounts which is that part of the reason why so many boats left so empty early on in the process of loading them is that many people didn't understand how dire the circumstance was. Many crew didn't even understand how dire the circumstances were. If you're thinking about this timeline around like 12.30, 12.45 a.m., the ship is mostly still above water. And so there is this question to many of, do, do I stay on this huge, massive thing that's warm and has electricity and heating, and I've got access to all of my things and kind of wait this out? Or do I get on this tiny little boat and go out into the middle of the open ocean at night? And again, even crew didn't totally understand what was going on. So it's you really can't blame people at this point for being hesitant to get on the boat. So Jockin testified that there were plenty of third-class women around this area. Then this boat was being loaded by Officer Wild. And he went on record during the inquiry saying that there were no distinctions made between women of different classes in the loading of this Lifeboat 10. And indeed, in Lifeboat 10, you have a really good mix of all three classes. And of course, we know now, looking at survival rates, that there was most certainly a difference in circumstances and opportunity between the classes in terms of loading the boats. But it makes sense that in the eyes of one person, the demographics of his boat might have convinced him otherwise. He also remembered seeing the interpreter working with third-class passengers, but admitted it was a slow and odd process because the third-class passengers were bringing their baggage up. And when asked by the inquiry if he physically saw anyone going to third-class to give instructions, he said no. Quote, stewards could not prevail on the people to leave their luggage either. So just to sum up what it would have taken based on what we know and what Jockin testifies to, for a third-class person to get up to where he was. They would have had to know how to go up to the boat deck, know they needed to go to the boat deck, which a lot of third-class passengers did not, go to the staircase near second class, get up to the well deck, go and then get up to the boat deck. And this is up two to three different ladders or staircases. So basically Jockin testifies that a fair amount of third-class women managed to find their way to his boat, which is good. But there's a lot more underneath that, of course. Because the ship was leaning to port side, the lifeboat 
was hanging really far out and there was this gap to jump over. There was a woman from third class who nearly fell into the sea trying to load this. And I think that that scene in the 97 movie where a woman falls out and is kind of pulled back onto a deck from a life pope may have been based on testimony about a moment like this, maybe even this exact moment. So I want to talk for a moment about who was in Lifeboat 10. I think it's always so amazing to picture the grouping of survivors in these boats after you have done the reading, the research, and you know a fair number of the survivors to then go back and imagine who was in boats together at least to me, maybe this just means I'm a total nerd. I mean, I am a total nerd, but it's amazing to me to imagine the configurations after you've learned a fair amount about some of the passengers. So on board Lifeboat 10, Melvina Dean is a tiny baby, the youngest survivor. She was in this boat with her mother and her brother. There were seven or eight first-class women about 15 possibly second-class passengers, including Masabumi Hosono, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was 42, and he was a civil servant from Tokyo, and he was the only Japanese passenger on Titanic. He had boarded at Southampton, and he later said his chance came up when an officer loading a lifeboat shouted, room for two more. A man jumped in. He said, quote, I myself was deep in desolate thought that I would no more be able to see my beloved wife and children since there was no alternative for me than to share the same destiny as the Titanic. But the example of the first man making a jump led me to take this chance. So it's possible that Charles Jockin was the one who helped to load this man in the boat. What's really, really really horribly sad is that Hosono was shunned in his country, just like many men were shunned in the United States for surviving. His whole life was ruined. He lost his job. I just, I can't, I can't comprehend that. A man being shunned and his life ruined for wanting to survive a sinking so that he could get back to his family. It just makes me want to cry. Um, he was he was most likely on this boat. And when I go over who was on what boat in whatever episode, just know that I there are <laughs> we don't 100 percent know. you know, there's no definitive list of who was on what boat. A lot of survivors said they were on one boat, but turns out they were actually on another because in the chaos of the night, didn't look at the number. A lot of them were transferred to different boats as they waited for rescue. There's a lot we don't know. I was at a conference, a Titanic conference, where I am not kidding you, there ended up being a massive debate at the conference based on some new kind of looking at research about which lifeboat a very well-known passenger was on and his descendants have spent many, many years thinking he was on one lifeboat, but maybe 
he was actually on another one and that brought up some emotion. So there's sometimes a lot writing on this and I certainly don't want to jump in the middle of any debates or squabbles. If you know differently about Lifeboat 10 and you really feel like you have evidence about some different stories involving Lifeboat 10, please let me know. But this is the best that I could find online in terms of a sense of who was on Lifeboat 10. So um, let's see, who else? Melvina Dean, the Japanese passenger, Hosono, and uh, 10 to 12 third-class passengers, and then the crew, a few other specifics of people on board. Mrs. Carl Asplund, her first name was Selma. She was born in 1873, so she was 38. She was my age. Today's my 38th birthday, by the way. Did I mention that? Probably not. <laughs> I don't tend to mention my birthday. Uh, and they were in third class, and they were with their children. They had five children that were on board, and they were traveling from Sweden to Massachusetts. Ma- Massachusetts. See, I can never say that word. If you're a longtime listener, then you remember me laughing about that in one of my early episodes. So sadly, only two of the children survived with Selma, Lillian, and Felix. So three children and her husband passed away. The Fortune family were in Lifeboat 10. Alice Fortune notoriously, and they they were first class, Uh, Alice Fortune notoriously went to a fortune teller prior to Titanic and apparently told people that she was very scared to be in the water. There were three daughters, the Fortune daughters, and their mother who survived. And also on Lifeboat 10, the LaRoche family, Joseph LaRoche, only black man on the Titanic, he and his family uh, were headed back to his home country of Haiti. And I did an entire episode on LaRoche and his family. So check back in the feed. Their story is heartbreaking, beautiful. We have a lot of sources for it. So please, 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 if you're interested, go back and listen to that one. It's one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. And I'm so mad because the sound quality on that one is not great. I was just having some random sound issues that day. So I wouldn't dare touch it. I don't want to go back and redo it. I think content wise, it's really great, but the sound quality. Okay. So at this point, Jockin goes back to his quarters. Notoriously, this is the moment for a nip of liquor. And he calls it a tumbler half full of liquor. So I think that's quite a bit. It's probably a few shots. And I just want to say, and and Veronica Hinky does a good job of pointing this out in her book, History of Jerry-Rigged Stills on Ships. This isn't weird. It's not, it wasn't like new at this point. Like people who worked on ships were typically not supposed to be drinking on the job, but they were. I mean, it's, it's not shocking. And they could combine yeast and fruit juice to brandy or schnapps, things like that. And Jockin obviously would have had a lot of access to those ingredients. And I just want to say, too, that in the inquiry, it's already a thing made of his having a drink. The people interviewing him are not mean-spirited, but they are very interested in the fact that he makes a point to say that he went to his quarters to have a drink. And one of the men in the inquiry says, quote, this is very important because I'm going to prove, or rather my suggestion is, that he then saved his life. I think his, and this is Jockin is the he, I think his getting a drink had a lot to do with saving his life. So that was already a thing. This conversation was already a thing back at the inquiry. 
And we'll talk about more of this in just a bit. So he then goes to B-deck, the second class promenade. And and again, this is in his testimony, begins throwing deck chairs over. And, you know, this scene is in the 97 movie. He'd heard that rescue ships are on the way. And, you know, he'd been at sea for many, many years. So he thought he could buy people time by throwing deck chairs into the ocean that they could float on while they waited for rescue ships. And I mean, this is incredibly helpful and heroic in this moment. There's lots of, you know, quiet moments of heroism on Titanic. And this is one of them. He really wanted to help as many people as he could by throwing these deck chairs overboard. It's possible that he truly, truly thought it would work. I mean, if he wasn't aware of how cold the water was, although the air was cold, so he probably was. But, you know, not not thinking about the temperature of the water, if the water wasn't so cold, then that probably would have saved many, many lives. He says he didn't see other people throwing deck chairs, but we do know there were some reports of Thomas Andrews being spotted throwing deck chairs. And that kind of cuts it off at the knees, you know, this myth of Thomas Andrews being last seen in the smoking room in front of the painting. It's actually more likely that he was on the decks trying to help and several people did see him do that. So sort of slashes that Andrews myth too. At this point, Jockin goes back to the pantry on a deck to drink some water, he says, and he heard a large crash, buckling sound. And at this point, chaos is unleashed. He emerges to a rush of people. The, you know, the scene depicted in the 97 movie and in many of the movies, the rush to the poop deck, the, the scores of people still left on board this ship. And Charles Jockin says, quote, their idea was to get to the poop deck. <laughs> It's not funny, but sometimes it's just funny when that word pops up in these stories. So people were piled up, crushing each other. And Jockin goes into quite a bit of this in his interview in the inquiry. But he manages to get to the stern and he recounts holding the rail on the outside of the ship as he rode the stern down. And this probably inspired Jim Cameron to make Jack and Rose kind of climb over to the outside there at the end. And the reason I think this inspired that is because James Cameron has Charles Jockin on the stern with Jack and Rose at the end in his Baker Whites. Cameron had obviously read this story, obviously knew of Jockin's story. So that's that's an accurate moment. You know, Jack and Rose enter into this historically accurate moment there on the stern. And it's one of the most heartbreaking scenes of the film, actually. But Jockin called it a glide. And he testified that that Titanic stern didn't jut out or jut up as dramatically as I think we sometimes visualize it. He called it more of a glide. But again, this is just one man's testimony. So he says that he glided and almost stepped into the water there at the end, that there wasn't this crazy amount of suction at the end. He said, quote, I do not believe my head went under the water at all. It may have been wetted, but no more. And here we go with some myth busting. And I even left a little bit of it in my intro so that I could bust open myself in a way. But you always hear the recounting of his story as his hair didn't even get wet, but that's not what he says. He says, my head didn't go under the water. It may have been wetted, 
but no more. So this visual we sometimes have in the myth of Charles Jockin of him just swimming along with a dry head of hair and a dry baker's hat, not necessarily true. At, at some point in the inquiry, he is asked, are you a good swimmer? And he replies, yes, because there is this sense in the inquiry that they are trying to figure out how this man survived. And why are they wondering that? Because listen to this. He says, I did not attempt to get anything to hold onto until I reached a collapsible, but that was daylight. So that would have put him in the water for over two hours. Quote, I was paddling and treading water. And this is the unbelievable part of it, right? This is why he has this mythology around him. This is why we obsess over this story. And we'll talk about the likelihood of that again in a minute. Don't worry. But he called the water like a pond. And so there is this sense in the inquiry that these men interviewing him cannot figure out how he survived. So we know that the collapsible he's talking about in that account was the one with Officer Lightoller on it, the one where Lightoller was guiding the group of men and one woman, Rhoda Abbott, to sort of balance the overturned collapsible and stay afloat. But this collapsible was the scene of suffering as well. You know, Harold Bride is on there and his feet are in the water and he ends up you know, in horrible pain and and hypothermia in his feet. There are men that are holding on for dear life and then end up falling off. On this collapsible is a man named Isaac Hiram Maynard. He went by John, though. And he obviously knew Jockin. They worked together. And he saw him. And Jockin claims that he swam over to Maynard and Maynard held his hand on the collapsible. Jockin said, quote, I tried to get on it, but I was pushed off. And I, what you call, hung around it. So basically, he made it to the collapsible, but was told there was no more room, that one more would tip the boat. So Maynard is holding his hand. And the collapsible has so much mythology around it. There is the myth of a man handing a baby over and then swimming off and saying, good boy, good lads. But there was no baby that was rescued on this collapsible. So if that is true, unfortunately, the baby slipped into the water. And and also some people say that this man who handed the baby over could have been Captain Smith, but there's no hard evidence for that. And like with so many things in Titanic, we just will never, ever know. But eventually, Jockin makes it to Lifeboat 12. He swims over to Lifeboat 12. And he is, of course, rescued onto the Carpathia. I saw one report that he was put in the oven on the Carpathia, and I have no idea if this is true. Perhaps just his feet were no idea. So following some recuperation in New York, arriving on the Carpathia, of course, Jockin then returned to England and he was called to testify at the British inquiry, which was on May 10th, 1912. And like I said, that's the source I've been using for this timeline. After Titanic, Jockin and his family returned to Liverpool. He spent time working aboard Olympic There was, of course, the outbreak of war in Europe in 1914. I saw one source um, said that he served with Marine fleets during the conflict. But this is also the time in September of 1916 when he is a baker aboard the SS Congress, like I mentioned in my intro, that was en route from San Francisco to Seattle. And that is when he is once again in the situation where a ship is potentially sinking, but in in this case, being engulfed 
in flames. We don't have a lot of information about what happened on the Congress, except that in all of the newspaper articles, I mean, in terms of Jockin, we obviously know quite a bit about what happened. But in terms of Jockin, just that in all the news reports, he is pointed out as the crew member who falls right in this transfer to the rescue ship. And the newspaper articles, I looked through a few of them, really loved to point out that he had been on Titanic. And I don't know if they mentioned him falling as some sort of reference to his story about Titanic. I don't know how well known his Titanic story was. I don't think super, so I don't know. But we don't we don't know much about it. Based on what I know of Jockin, I can imagine that he did the same thing he did on Titanic, which was to scurry around and to help wherever he could. And you know, I just realized something, and this is what happens when <laughs> this is what happens when I have a script, which I do. Um, I compile my research into a script, but then I also have a separate set of notes next to me. And I I am sort of cross-referencing as I record because I want to make sure that I include all of the important info, but I also want to make sure that this is conversational in tone and alive and organic as I'm recording so that it's really me talking to you, not just a cold script. But I did forget to mention something important, which is that he was assigned, and you're probably, you were probably listening to this and wondering, wait, what happened? Sorry. He was assigned to Lifeboat 10 and helped to load it, but he obviously didn't get on it. And he didn't because Wild never ordered him onto it. So he was an employee and a crew member that at, at every moment was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. And yes, he was nipping whiskey or schnapps back in his room, but That's not what defines him on Titanic. I mean, if I was in the middle of a horrible crisis like that and knew that I might go into the ocean, I probably would go grab a bottle of whiskey as well. I don't know that that makes me a bad person. So he was at that boat at Lifeboat 10 loading it, then was not ordered in it. Like he probably thought all along, oh, I'm also going to get in this boat. Maybe I'll be saved. And he stepped back. He wasn't ordered in and he thought it would look poor form to get in. So he didn't. And I just want to mention that I should have mentioned that when I was recounting all the stuff from Lifeboat 10. I can imagine on the Congress, he's doing the same thing. He's scurrying around helping wherever he can. So he's in he's back in Britain after that. And his wife, Louise, was expecting another child, their third child, it would have been. But she died from complications in childbirth, very sadly. And Richard, the third child, the new son, was also lost in childbirth. Shortly after all of this, Charles resettles in Patterson, New Jersey. This is in the early 1920s. I saw some sources say, you know, at this point, he leaves his two surviving children. I don't know the details of that. And there is no way that I, as a person researching and writing and talking to you in 2022, can say anything definitively about this man's relationship to his children without more sources. Maybe if I had a huge, thick personal diary of his, I could maybe make some claims. But as a historian, I can't base a lot about his relationship um, with his children 
can't base it on this information that I have. But we do know that he ends up in Patterson, New Jersey in the early 1920s, and he begins working on U.S. ships. He declared his intention to become a U.S. citizen in 1927, and he became one in 1930. He is, in 1931, listed as receiving a U.S. seaman's passport. At this time, he was working aboard a ship called the American Banker, and we get a little sneak a sneak peek into the description of him at this point. He was described as standing at 5'4", so tiny bit taller than he's listed uh, on Titanic, and having gray hair, brown eyes, and a, quote, ruddy complexion. He was remarried in September of 1925 to Annie Eleanor Nelly, as she was known, Howarth Call, nay Ripley. So she had a lot of names, and I think she was married before. (laughs) Yeah, she was a widower. Uh, And she was originally from Leeds, but had moved to the United States many years prior. She had a daughter named Rose, uh, also born in 1891, which would put her about the age of Rose, fictional Rose, at the time of Titanic sailing. So, you know, I had to point that out. Uh, And this is where Charles would spend the rest of his life as a base. So while in the United States, Draken served as a baker aboard many, many ships. So he appears on crew lists for many ships. And again, (laughs) this is one of the main sources we have for him, you know, census, British inquiry, ship rosters. So anybody who tries to stretch all that out to more than, I don't know, it's, a lot of speculation to fill in the gaps, but we do have ship rosters. He is on the Fort Victoria, the Croonland, the Mongolia, the Belgian land, the American banker, like I mentioned, American trader, the Jamaica, the Deer Lodge, the city of Los Angeles. These ship names are so intriguing. In 1941, in December, only three days after Pearl Harbor, so on December 10th, 1941, he was on the U.S. freighter, the SS Oregon, And that ship was accidentally rammed by the USS New Mexico, and it sank. And there were 17 fatalities. Charles Jockin was not among them. He survived a disaster once again. Charles was widowed also again on April 22nd of 1944, and apparently he never recovered from this loss. Unfortunately, his son Roland also died before him. So he loses a couple of children. And, you know, as a parent, whenever I see that as part of someone's personal history, it's um, almost so heartbreaking that it's numbing. You know, my mind almost tries to shut down because it's so unfathomable. And To go through the trauma that he did, several ship disasters, the loss of two wives, the loss of children, and to continue to work and to continue to try to move forward, it's more than a lot of us could do in the face of all of that tragedy and what was undoubtedly a lot of PTSD. And We'll we'll talk about it more. There's a lot of speculation about how much he drank 
it's possible they did drink a lot. <laughs> you know, it's possible that the story of him nipping at the schnapps or whiskey during Titanic sinking is indicative of someone who went to the drink a lot. It's also possible that he didn't. I don't know. You know, I, I, I can't say definitively. I don't think anybody can unless they were in his family at the time. So you will see people debate this a lot. Yeah, I just don't know. What's interesting as, as Charles Dawkins gets older, and he's about to, uh, as you'll see, interact with Walter Lord. But before that, I want to mention something from Walter Lord's A Night to Remember that's just one of those little nuggets of Titanic history that I think is lost in the shuffle sometimes. But there was a man named Walter Belford who claimed to be chief night baker on Titanic and contacted Walter Lord in the 1950s when Walter Lord was compiling survivor stories. And he told a story that was suspiciously like Jawkins, that a bottle of scotch basically saved his life. And he claimed to have just found the bottle of scotch on deck. He got in touch with Walter Lord when he was 86, when, when Belford was 86. He was working at the Russian Jewish deli, the Tip Top Inn on New York's Upper West Side. And Veronica Hinky points out that in her section on Jockin, that in the episode of Mad Men, where Roger Sterling takes Joan to a deli because they wouldn't be seen by anybody there, that's the tip top end. And I, I used to watch Mad Men. I haven't watched it in forever, so I don't know what episode it is. But anyway, Veronica points that out, and I thought that was so interesting. Uh, but Lord included Belford's story in his work and believed it to be true. And Belford even attended a memorial service at Siemens Church in New York City in 1962. But as we know now, this was all a fraud. So it's insane. But, you know, pre-internet days, I, I, I think you could get away with a lot more back then. Charles Jockin did write Walter Lord a letter, though. And I want to just read you the letter. I could chop it up and there's no point. Just listen to the letter. And keep in mind that someone would have had to transcribe it for him because he he was not a writer. He was he was by many accounts illiterate throughout his life. Dear sir, some secretaries brought to my notice your very splendid article, A Night to Remember in the current issue of the Ladies Home Journal. Most written accounts were hair-raising scenes which did not actually occur, except in the last few moments when those left behind made a mad rush towards what they considered a safer place, the poop deck. Fortunately, I was all alone when the big list to port occurred. I was able to straddle the starboard rail on a deck and stepped off as the ship went under. I had expected suction of some kind, but felt none. At no time was my head underwater, just kept moving my arms and legs and kept in an upright position. No trick at all with a, with a life belt on. Your account of the upturned collapsible with Colonel Gracie aboard was very correct. Most of the crew were familiar with lifeboats and fire stations as they had manned the Olympic, a sister ship, previously. Some curious things are done at a time like this. Why did I lock the heavy iron door of the bakery, stuff the heavy keys in my pocket alongside two cakes of hard tobacco? My conclusions of cause... 
Grave error on part of Captain Smith kept course in spite of ice warnings and a severe drop in temperature from 5 p.m. Loss of life, lifeboat shortage for the number of passengers and crew, but many more could have been saved had the women obeyed orders. In those circumstances, the crew are helpless. So there's some letter. And of course, you know, the comment about the women at the end, I don't think is malicious. I think he is not necessarily making a commentary about women, but more just referencing what we talked about earlier, which is that he witnessed at the boats early on in the night that many women were hesitant to get on board. So I don't know necessarily it should be read as a sexist comment by any means. Uh, I think it's so interesting what he what he points out, right? That that he feels this sense of sensationalism that a lot of survivors, whether passengers or crew, have communicated, but that from his experience, it wasn't until those last moments that people really understood what was going to happen and chaos ensued. And again, this is just one man's testimony, but I do think the beauty of it and his simplistic language is a sense of, you know, I mean, I personally believe this is true, but that there's just so much gray area. There's no black or white. There's no, these people misbehaved and these people didn't. These people were heroes and these people weren't. It's for most of the sinking, just a milieu, just, you know, a, a town place where most people probably still didn't think that they were going to die. Most people probably still believed that this incredible ship would save them, would hold them. Anyway, so that is his communication with Walter Lord. Charles Jockin never gave interviews about Titanic. Uh, not really. He did speak to his family about it. And apparently when his step-granddaughter asked him how cold the water was, he said, quote, my dear, I was swimming with the polar bears that night. And this quote, I think, has been misinterpreted in some sources. And they claim that Jockin said he saw a polar bear. I don't think he ever said that. I think he just told a child, hey, I was swimming with the polar bears that night. So here's the question coming out of all of this. Charles Jockin died in 1956. So he's not here anymore to uh, tell us the nitty gritty of, of his tale. But people have spent a lot of time speculating on his survival, how he survived in the water. Did he survive in the water as long as he claimed he did? Now, there are so many theories about this, about A, was it the drink that helped him survive? And B, did he actually survive in the water that long? There's so many theories. There's an entire encyclopedia Titanica message board about this debate. And to be clear, some of the thoughts and what I'm sharing with you here comes from that as a source, because there are a lot of really well-read Titanic scholars and enthusiasts that post and have posted on Encyclopedia Titanica. And these posts go back now 20, 25 years because the internet is getting older. <laughs> so 
I, I would encourage you to go look through some of these message boards if you're interested in in the the very the minutia 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 of some of these debates. Some people think that he wasn't actually in the water for hours; that the water was just so cold that he thought he was. That ten minutes could feel like an hour in water that cold, but. What rails against that theory is his account of when he's at the collapsible, that he never gets onto the collapsible, and that he's not on a lifeboat until he boards lifeboat 12. Now, Lucy Duff Gordon, Lucille Lady Duff Gordon, lingerie designer, she's in the 97 movie, she recounted in her memoir, which was published in 1932, so there's a little bit of a gap, that the tale of Jockin was already making the rounds on the Carpathia. She writes about this. And her version, Duff Gordon's version, puts Jockin's time in the water at about an hour. Now she's drawing on her memory from 20 years prior at this point. It's also a story that's circulating in a gossipy tone on the Carpathia already. So there's several layers of this, even in 1912, even in those moments on Carpathia, where it's already being like storified, mythified. In the inquiry, Jockin reports that he didn't reach the collapsible until sunrise. Sunrise was at 540. So if you take that super literally, then he would have been in the water for three hour and three hours and 20 minutes. There's also a world in which Jockin may have been incorrect about when he reached the collapsible, and maybe he's holding on to Maynard's hand in such a way that enough of his body is out of the water that that contributes to him making it. It's easy to see, and you know, I'm not the first person to point this out. Everybody who's ever written or talked about this has pointed this out. It's easy to imagine that Jockin might have gotten his time or his series or sequence of events wrong. You know, he has just been through a trauma. He is in freezing water. Hypothermia is setting in. Everyone knows that causes disorientation. So I think this debate about how long he was in the water is one of the most fruitless debates I've ever come across in the Titanic community. I mean, I doubt he was in the water for over three hours. Most people doubt that. It's possible that he was in the water for one to two hours. A lot of people agree that there is the outlier possibility of a human being surviving that, especially because he he was in a lifeboat. And if he was able to sort of climb up a little bit on that collapsible and get some of his body out of the water, especially his heart, then, you know, the one to two hour mark is is possible. There are, and some of them were even on the Titanic message boards, like people sharing their personal stories, but there are stories throughout history of people surviving shipwrecks and situations like this in the cold for multiple hours. Now, it's very rare, you know, 99.9999% of people that go into the water at this temperature are going to die within the first 15 minutes. But there are always exceptions to the rule. And it's not impossible that Jockin was an exception to this rule. But the other part of the question is the alcohol, right? Did the alcohol contribute to his being able to survive in the water 
you know, no matter how long it was, it was obviously a lot longer than most of the people that went into the water that night. I found some stuff that are, that pertains to this. There's a study from 1997. I found in a medical journey, this journal, this was from the department of physiology in Leeds. A study from 97 concluded that moderate alcohol consumption does not attenuate the initial cold shock responses to a practically significant extent and is thus unlikely to reduce the risk of drowning on immersion in cold water. In other words, no, alcohol in your system isn't going to prevent those cold shock like systemic responses from setting in. Alcohol, though, can make you think you're warm, but it's a deception. So when you drink, alcohol affects the blood vessels just below your skin. They open up, and so blood and heat flow into them. That takes blood and heat away from your core and your core body temperature. So you may feel warm, but your organs are actually not getting as much warmth. The Journal of Wilderness Medicine, I ran across, says, despite the feeling of warmth induced by alcohol ingestion, it is widely believed that alcohol actually causes a decrease in body core temperature and increases the risk of hypothermia. So I think this myth of the drunk baker surviving Titanic because he was drunk. And by the way, we don't even know if he was drunk. I mean, I'm not drunk if I have one glass of whiskey. So, you know, I just think this myth has so many holes and we just accept all of this at surface level. But none of the most mythic parts of Jockin's story are really even that true. So alcohol probably didn't do anything. It was probably him calmly going into the water and not thrashing and not using that energy. It was probably the fact that he was able to hang on to the collapsible and get some of his body out of the water. And it was probably some just luck. And perhaps that he was in the water a shorter amount of time than he thought. But this mythic stature of him as the, you know, liquor drinking, deck, chair throwing, man on the stern. It's in the movies. It's it's always cherry-picked by directors on Titanic movies. In A Night to Remember, he's seen drinking after giving up space in a lifeboat. In the 97 movie, he's on the stern, like I mentioned with Jack and Rose. There's also a deleted scene you can look up where he's kind of hanging off the collapsible. So James Cameron knew this story very well. You can actually follow Liam Tui, who played Jockin in the 97 movie, on social media. You can just go to my account and look at followers because he follows the pod. So Liam, if you're if you're listening, shoot me a message. Let's have you on the pod. So in conclusion, you know, we tend to turn people into characters when we summarize and analyze tragedy. Something like Titanic, it's a morality play in the retelling. I mean, I've said this a hundred times. We've all said this a hundred times about Titanic. And I talk a lot about the myth of the wealthy male hero on Titanic, the first class men like J.J. Astor and Archibald Butt on the decks at the end with their cigars and their brandy. And let me be clear once and for all, I'm not dissing those men. I'm not villainizing them. I have no idea what they did at the end. What I tend to dislike is the habits of researchers and writers who boil these men down to some simplistic interpretation. I mean, with Astor, for example, 
he may have been holding a cigar at the end on the decks. But before that, he actually asked to get in a lifeboat with his wife, Madeline, which is not a sign of not being a hero. It's a sign of him wanting to be with his pregnant wife as she goes into the open ocean. Anyway, what I what I tend to dislike are these habits of the boiling down of people, you know, down to one word. We'd like to try to boil people down to one word or one character attribute when they're involved in something like this. Heroic, stoic, uh, cowardly, whatever it may be. And just like they boil Guggenheim down to this mythic request for brandy at the end, we've all heard that one, as the water surged upon him, writers have boiled Jockin down to just his nips of brandy or schnapps or whatever it is. As Veronica Hinky points out in her book, we don't actually know what it is. It might have been some gross fruity schnapps. <laughs> but this was a life. Charles Jockin's life was one of darkness and light struggles, successes, nips of brandy, sure, but sorrow and joy, fresh bread from the oven, chocolate eclairs with his children and later grandchildren, a life, losses, a life. I wish we knew even more. I wish this episode could be three hours long, but this is what we know about Charles Jockin. If you know anything else or have read anything else to share, please reach out. I am always, always down to do updates on episodes, to correct myself if I'm wrong. I welcome constructive feedback, criticism, filling in the gaps on my research. Please let me know. I am, I can imagine a Charles Jockin update episode if there's more. Like, please let me know if you know more. But this is what I could piece together from my research. I want to give a special thank you to Veronica Hinky. Her chapter on Charles Jockin was a great, uh, provided a, a very great outline to work from, and she's some wonderful writing in that section. And uh, she has a recipe for chocolate eclairs and for the Bickies on Titanic in that chapter as well. So if you haven't picked up that book, it's really fun. There's a lot of fun recipes uh, from the ship in there as well. Also, a huge source was the British Inquiry testimonies. I recommend if you're a Titanic person and you love to read and you have time, going back and reading the testimonies from the American Inquiry and the British Inquiry. It's a great use of your time to really have a very grounded sense of the sources and what we know. And yeah, I mean, it this was this was the first sort of deep dive on a person episode that I've gone back to do since last season. And I was reminded of how much work it is. I mean that in a good way. I love it. It is so much work to compile sources, to cross-check, to attempt to really piece together an entire life. As always, thank you for listening. I am astounded by how many parts of the world I have listeners in. I, you know, and I log on once in a while and look at, you know, on Buzzsprout, which is the service I, the hosting service I use. I look at the data and it tells me where people are listening from and it's everywhere from Australia to France to Lebanon to Canada to, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I thank you. And hello from Austin, Texas to everywhere in the world. Please always feel free to contact me on syncablepod at gmail.com. Uh, 
Please consider joining Patreon if you're enjoying the podcast. The link is in the show notes. Also, I can be found on Instagram at unsinkablepod, and my upcoming new podcast, Mythic Americana, can also be found on Instagram at Mythic Americana. Lots to come, some content related to the 97 movie coming up very soon. Thank you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day, whether it's November of 2022 when this is posting or some day in the future. (laughs) Enjoy your day and talk soon.